folks, it's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Steve Williamson here. Welcome to rainy Sedona, massive thunderstorms and flooding, and uh, uh, that we badly need it. We we I haven't seen storms like this in years, and I don't think we've had any decent rain for six months. But now we got we've got the famous you know uh, desert uh, uh, summer monsoon thunderstorm. Uh, we're talking today with. Um, um, a person that we've had on uh, several times before, Max Richmond. Uh, he's the, uh, I think it's called the president of the committee on, uh, to protect um, Social Security and Medicare. He's one of the most articulate persons I know on, and certainly the most knowledgeable about the impacts of policy decisions on Medicare and Social Security and the impacts of these programs on on the American people. Uh, Max is talking to us. Are you from? Are you talking to us from D.C., Max? Yes, from uh, actually Virginia, but right close to D.C. Well, that's close enough. All right. Biden and the Senate are talking about a $3.5 trillion spending plan. Uh, it's huge. It's comprehensive. Um, expanding Medicare is one part of it. Immigration reform, climate provisions, child tax credit, universal kindergarten, uh, two years of free uh, community college, um, and so forth and so on. But we're going to be focusing, talking to you about is the impact on 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 Medicare and Social Security, and um, if you had to sum that up, how how would how would you how would you describe this plan's impact on these important uh, programs? Well, the impact on Medicare is is huge. Uh, this would be if if this actually happens, and there's some question now about whether. Uh, there are the votes to get this through uh, in the next uh, uh, couple months, all the way through, I mean, the House and Senate and signed into law. It would be the first uh, uh, major expansion of Medicare benefits uh, in nearly 20 years. The last time the Congress uh, took on uh, Medicare and the need to improve benefits was 2003, when, as you probably know, uh, a prescription drug component was added to the Medicare uh, plan, and it was uh, uh, has been called Medicare uh, Part D, and it's optional. Uh, people pay a certain amount uh, in an additional premium, and they get some pretty good coverage. And hopefully, I can tell you uh, in a, uh, during this interview what the flaw in that plan. But it was least it was an improvement. Now, for I think for the first time since that 2003 legislation, uh, we have an opportunity to add hearing, dental, and vision coverage to the Medicare uh, program. And I have to tell you, I've done hundreds of town hall meetings over the years, uh, mostly with members of Congress all over the country, and uh, the audience is predominantly seniors or uh, people about to become eligible for Medicare, 65. 
uh, and they assume so often that Medicare does cover hearing, dental, and vision, at least to some extent, and they've often put off uh, getting uh, examinations or uh, actual treatments because they think they're going to be covered once they reach age 65, and they're dead wrong. Uh, these are such important components of health care uh, that have been neglected uh, over the years. And now with this plan that you talked about, this uh, comprehensive uh, plan on many, many economic issues, we have an opportunity uh, with uh, a Congress that uh, is uh, controlled by the Democrats in the House and the Senate, even though it's very, very close, and a Democrat in the White House, President Biden, to actually see these benefits uh, uh, created and put into law. I, I think uh, you're absolutely right. Um, when um, when I was working here in Sedona, guys I worked with um, in the uh, well in the uh, tour industry um, always assumed that once they got Medicare, they'd get all these benefits. And I know they waited on their medical care because the company provided zero, no medical care at all. And this was before affordable health care became really uh, act became really. It had any impact yet? It was just beginning, and uh, and they assumed that once they got to sixty six or sixty five, that their vision, their hearing, and and so forth would be taken care of. And uh, I wasn't really there for to see what happened when they when they found out they didn't get those benefits, but. Um, we had, you know, so many of them were so anti-government this, anti-government that, and yet, you know, they had nothing for their retirement but basically Social Security. They had no health protection except for Medicare. That was it. And yet, uh, instead of blaming employers or, or right, the state or anybody else, they were they were busy blaming the federal government uh, when the federal government was, in fact, doing more for them than anybody else. But I... What would be the cost of these plans? Do you have any idea? I mean, the first thing objection is going to be vision, hearing, uh, and and so forth. Is is that it, it? It's going to be extremely expensive to cover those items. I mean, hearing aids are just out of uh, out of the price range of a lot of seniors. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's really not possible to put a a dollar figure. Uh, to these benefits at the moment because we're not exactly sure the uh, the comprehensiveness of those uh, uh, benefits. Uh, what exactly would be included? For example, hearing testing, is that included? Uh, how much, uh, what percent of the cost of hearing aids uh, would be covered? Uh, that hasn't all been sorted out. But uh, uh, what, I, what I think is important to to raise in the conversation with you now is uh, where is a source of revenue uh, to pay for whatever it, whatever the cost is? And, you know, I, I mentioned at the outset the prescription drug addition, uh, additional coverage to Medicare in 2003. Um, it, it was, a, it was a, a big improvement. We fought for it for years and finally got it in, signed into law. Unfortunately, uh, it, this legislation uh, was passed and uh, debated uh, over the course of many, many hours. 
And uh, in the middle, and I went in the gallery of the House of Representatives to watch some of the debate. And I went home, I, I don't know, probably a little after midnight. I uh, woke up the next morning to find and uh, read some of the accounts of what was happening. Uh, uh, late uh, that night, probably five or six in the morning, a deal was struck where, yes, uh, the pharmaceutical companies would agree to have uh, Medicare cover prescription drugs, but only if the government was specifically prohibited from negotiating for the best price for prescription drugs uh, with the pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, you, you can easily figure out who was in the room when that deal was made, and it wasn't the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. It was the pharmaceutical companies. This protected them from actually uh, delivering lower-cost prescription drugs uh, to Medicare beneficiaries. We have been trying for a long, long time, ever, actually ever since 2003, to uh, repeal that that prohibition for negotiation. The, the plan that is being developed uh, now on, uh, on these additional benefits uh, hopefully will include uh, a provision to uh, allow the federal government, well, actually not just allow, but mandate the federal government to uh, negotiate for the best price for prescription drugs with the, with the pharmaceutical companies, which only makes sense. You've got an entity representing tens of millions of people, and they cannot uh, try to get the best price. And uh, we are looking at a, at a scenario here where that would change. What does that mean? According to uh, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, which looked at this a couple years ago, uh, that Medicare and Medicare beneficiaries could save about $450 billion, $450 billion over 10 years by allowing uh, the program, Medicare program, to negotiate directly with the, with the big pharma. So is there any excuse, Max, is there any excuse for this, uh, for this provision that... Uh, I, I don't know exactly, and I don't think anybody has sorted it out, exactly how much coverage for each of these benefits, hearing, dental, and vision sure. provided. But the revenue is there. The rub is there are, there are a lot of competing interests for that $450 billion, whether it's to pay for other parts, of, that you just mentioned, of, of increased benefits across the board for, for a variety of, of individuals and groups. Uh, so that's going to be, uh, and I have, I have talked to many members of Congress trying to pin them down, uh, you know, is this savings, if it happens, going to be applied towards adding these important benefits? And uh, the answer I usually get is something like, well, that's, the debate on that is fluid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it, I don't know how that, how that will play out, but we're doing everything we can, and I know there's some uh, strong proponents uh, of, uh, in the Congress, the House and the Senate, to apply at least some of that savings, if not all of it, to add these benefits to the Medicare program. 
So it's not so much a debate about how much money is going to be saved as a debate of what to do with the $450 billion that is saved. Precisely. Mm. Um, it's, it's incomprehensible. I mean, there's no logical explanation to, to make Medicare not negotiate for, for drug prices, folks. I mean, it just it's just a result of industry um, lobbying. It can't be anything else. It makes no sense. The Veterans Administration can negotiate, I think, um, at least to a great degree. Uh, Absolutely right. And, and, you know, one of the arguments, uh, and if you watch television, I'm sure you do, you'll start, you've started seeing these ads uh, from the pharmaceutical industry opposing uh, this change in law. That would that would in effect lower prescription drug costs, and and uh, the argument that the that pharmaceutical companies use is uh, this is well first uh, the overriding argument I keep hearing well this is socialism. Well, I thought negotiating for the best price for anything I, to me that's capitalism. That's not socialism. Socialism would be dictating this is what we're going to pay. That's not what the law, uh, how the law would be changed. But, but even more specious than that, we hear so often, well, if, if the price of prescription drugs uh, is reduced, we're not going to, pharmaceutical companies, when I say we, uh, are not going to have the revenue to engage in all the research uh, that we need to do and pursue in order to bring these groundbreaking drugs uh, to the American people. That That's probably the, their strongest argument, or at least one to the public. I don't watch television, and so I think one advantage of watching t- uh, television is that all those ads, and the ads tell you a lot about uh, who who has the money, who has the interest. Uh, when candidates are running, they give you a pretty good idea of which candidate has sufficient funds to be on TV. So I don't see it, Max. I don't see... I, what the pharmaceutical industry is doing, I'm familiar with that argument because it's decades old that it, if we if you do anything to cut drug prices, then the pharmaceutical industry won't have enough money to do research. So, is why is that just simply not true, or is it partially true? Well, it, it's it's not true at all for a number of reasons. Uh, a lot of the research money that goes into developing drugs comes from the federal government. So here we have the federal government uh, in many, many cases paying for this basic research and then end up paying the high prices to the pharmaceutical companies that bring these, um, these drugs developed by this research to market. And furthermore, I have seen uh, analysis of how much money the pharmaceutical companies uh, spend on lobbying tens of millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars every quarter, every three months. That's, they're putting their, uh, their, their, uh, some of their profits into that. They're putting it into uh, buy, stock buybacks. They're putting it into uh, enormous salaries, uh, enormous salaries for ex- chief executives um, of the pharmaceutical companies and ads. You, may, you say you don't watch much television. If you watch television at all, you, you cannot go for more than 20 or 30 minutes without being bombarded with all of these ads for these amazing drugs. 
and and that's where the that's where a lot of the money it is not going uh, into research. So it's a phony argument. It's designed to scare people to think if uh, if the federal government has the ability to negotiate, not dictate, but negotiate uh, the best price, that the American consumer uh, will be uh, damaged because those drugs will not be available down the road. That's not that's not at all accurate. When I was in the audiovisual industry, we did shows, uh, audiovisual shows, for the largest drug manufacturers, some of the largest drug manufacturers in the country. On the the whole, and, and mostly these were aimed at. Uh, some of them were focused simply on on salespeople, and uh, the sales. Uh, uh, People were being bombarded and rewarded in in a, in a way with all kinds of trips and perks and raises if they would sell more and more drugs. It was never there was some bragging about new drugs because new drugs meant selling something for new businesses, but there wasn't much much else going on. I mean, they were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars talking to their own people. Psyching them up to to sell, sell, sell. In fact, it's one of one of our modules called "Sell, Sell, Sell," and that we just I, I thought this stuff was aimed at driving the salespeople mad, <laughs> you know. But but the amount of money they spent. The other thing, folks, is these these companies are organized almost like a military uh, uh, establishment. I mean, it's a, they're extremely top down. Um, and they're very rigid about uh, about their presentations, about what what their how their people act and what they say. Um, but that is their that is their scary argument. We won't develop any of these new powerful drugs if you if we have to if you get drugs at the price of everybody else in the world. And I think that I think Max that does that does really affect people. People believe it. They, they do, and at the same time, uh, we've seen some very credible polls. Uh, Morning Consult has a poll out recently that shows clearly that a majority of voters across party lines, Democrats, uh, Republicans, Independents, a vast majority support Medicare drug price negotiations. And uh, I'm hoping that Despite uh, the uh, ads that we just have been talking about and the really uh, scare tactics that those ads uh, uh, use in, in, in convincing the public that we don't, we, they should not uh, accept uh, this price negotiation on, on drug with drug makers. Despite that, the overwhelming support. Uh, from the American people to uh, allow the government to negotiate for the best price will prevail. And the reason is, I think the reason that the numbers are so astounding, I think it's a 70 to 80 percent majority across the political spectrum, is because just what you just talked about, it doesn't make sense. Uh, it smells fishy when you, when you see that the government is... Uh, is really bound by whatever the pharmaceutical companies decide they want to charge. There's no, they don't have any, the ability uh, to negotiate. And again, as you mentioned, um, the VA does uh, permit price negotiations. And I've, I've seen an analysis that Medicare could save about 40% of what it's spending 
on drug costs if it were allowed to negotiate simply as the Veterans Administration currently is allowed to do. Um, one of the arguments I've heard that I don't think folks out there have heard is is the um, is 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 more internal in that um, I don't see how to express it. Um, they're saying that the large drug providers, the the large managers like Express Scripts and uh, these other large companies that deliver drugs to people, particularly I think a lot to seniors, but also to everybody else, they're negotiating with the drug company so Medicare doesn't have to. Well, the the benefits do not accrue uh, to the federal government and certainly do not accrue uh, to the beneficiaries. Uh, Those pharmacy uh, benefit managers, uh, they're not obligated to pass along any of these savings, which is, I think, another reason that that's really not a legitimate, solid argument against uh, changing the the basic law. it is absolutely clear, as I pointed out, when this Medicare ha- added a prescription drug benefit, that this provision was put in there at the behest of the pharmaceutical companies. It's in their interest. It's not in the interest of, of, of Medicare beneficiaries or anybody who needs to take uh, prescription medicines. It's in the interest of the pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, we've now... I hope we've dispelled some of the phony arguments about we need this money to to uh, provide research uh, to bring these drugs to market. That's not uh, that's not a, that argument does not hold water. When you look at how much money is spent by the federal government for research, and how much money is spent by the pharmaceutical industry on lobbying, on advertising, on an enormous executive uh, pay. On stock buybacks, there, that's where the money is going. It's not to provide research, but it's an argument that has been used pretty effectively since 2003. Uh, I, I know that the uh, two, your two senators uh, uh, from Arizona, uh, we supported them, and I think that they do pay attention uh, to uh, the concerns of, of seniors. Medicare beneficiaries. So I'm hoping that uh, they will be able to provide, help provide the votes needed to uh, bring this additional, these additional benefits to Medicare over the finish line. I think people listening out there can see that this one portion of the Biden plan, this one section of it, can provide a lot of benefits that you'll actually feel, that'll actually do you some good personally that'll actually save you money. So uh, it, it it it's particularly frustrating if you know that the federal government is is spending our tax money is spending all the money to do the basic research. We get the thing pretty far along, and we hand it over to the drug companies to make all the profit from, from finishing off developing the drug. And it's uh, it it's. It's hard to understand and accept anything but lobbying and and and, and pressure, and, and they don't even, as far as I know, uh, Max, you may know better. They don't even split the money that uh, the, the the people and the government have invested in in the research with with us. They just take all the profit. 
That's exactly right. And, and uh, at the same time, you know, the reason we haven't been able to change the law since 2003 is the pharmaceutical industry has enormous influence uh, in the Congress. They're major contributors uh, to, uh, to many campaigns, uh, and, and uh, they're able to put that pressure that is, we've heard about so often on members of Congress, and they, and they promote misinformation, basic misinformation about the need to keep these uh, drug prices high. You know, I, I wonder if we could, you mentioned Social Security sure. on the outset, and uh, if I could make a comment on that. The, the, the budget proposals that are kind of coalescing uh, uh, in, the, in the Congress uh, uh, do, do not specifically uh, deal with Social Security. But I am very encouraged that we have a president who, during his campaign and in conversations that I'm aware of with key uh, legislators in the House uh, and in the Senate, uh, has, uh, has made a commitment to improve the Social Security uh, program, to have um, an improvement in the way the cost of living adjustment, as you know, is very important. It's the increase supposed to happen every year often does not uh, because the measure, the way to determine the cost of living adjustment, commonly called the COLA, is flawed, does not accurately measure inflation as it impacts a senior. Improved benefits, uh, especially for the oldest of the old, those over 85, and uh, add some years of solvency to the Medicare program. And this is being discussed in the halls of Congress and with some of the groups like ours, the Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. And this could be done uh, if uh, the law was changed to uh, add revenue to the Social Security program. You know, another uh, uh, piece of misinformation uh, among the public is how Social Security is financed. It's paid for entirely are nearly entirely by the payroll tax. The cap, payroll tax has a cap on wages subject to, to withholding for Social Security. It changes a little bit every year. It's about $141,000 a year this year. So what After happens? That, Tell folks what happens when, when you reach $141,000 plus. No more payroll tax. No more payroll tax. No payroll tax. So... Uh, you know, the, the, the president's commitment to not raise taxes on anyone uh, earning less than $400,000 a year, he's, he's very well uh, bound to that, and I don't think we'll deviate from that. But if you change the law, kept the cap at what it is, 141000 some hundreds, uh, as I said, it changes a little bit every year, but then you reinstituted the payroll tax for those earning 400000 and more in wages, you would derive enough revenue to have some significant improvements in the Social Security program in, the, in terms of benefits, the, the cost of living adjustment, uh, the solvency, adding years of solvency that the program will, would be able to access to continue paying benefits. That could all be accomplished by changing that formula uh, 
on the cap. Now, again, going back to what I hear at town hall meetings, and that's where I learn a lot, uh, there are a lot of people who have no idea, no idea whatsoever that there's a cap on wages subject to payroll tax because they've never made, they've never exceeded it. Yeah, so most of us never reached that Social cap. Security or on your wages is withheld uh, from your paycheck, and that's the way it is. That's not the way it is, because once you reach that, that uh, cap, you stop paying payroll taxes. And I think when people start to realize how unfair that is, uh, we'll have enough support to get something through the Congress, especially if it it's consistent with the president's pledge of not raising any taxes for those earning uh, under $400,000 a year, uh, $400,000 a year. You know, I, I used an, an analogy once in a town hall meeting, and I named the person. I won't do that because I got into a little trouble with that, but there's a very famous basketball player. He makes a lot of money. He probably deserves to make a lot of money, but he reaches the cap. He stops paying payroll taxes halfway through the, fir- through the first quarter, halfway through the first quarter of the first game of the basketball season. And you know there are a lot of games in the, in the season. I know. The rest of that quarter, the rest of that game, the rest of that season, uh, the playoffs, the championship, no more payroll taxes and uh, from this individual. And I, I have a feeling that, He'd probably be okay with at least paying payroll tax for the whole quarter, that whole first quarter. And and I use that as a as an analogy of how unfair it is that uh, there there is this limitation on on the amount of revenue that Social Security uh, can collect. It used to be the payroll taxes covered about 94 percent of wages. 20 years ago, mm-hmm. but now in the last 20 or so years, because there's been such a significant difference between uh, the very wealthy and the rest of us, Social Security only covers about 82% of payroll tax, of, uh, of wages. Uh, wages. So, you know, there's, I think, a good argument for at least bringing it into a formula that's consistent with what historically has been uh, covered in terms of wages. And, you know, as, a, as our organization, we would advocate eliminating the cap entirely, politically, especially with the president's uh, pledge on not increasing taxes for those earning under 400000 That's not realistic. So I think this, would, this change, if it happens, and there's a lot of momentum, a bill will be introduced uh, in the House along these lines uh, probably this week or next week, and hopefully we'll get some action on it uh, before the Congress finishes this session. I think what folks don't understand that the solution to Social Security's problems is in some ways very simple. We started on air in 2011, and we've been talking about Social Security and Medicare ever since, every year. And... That what Max is talking about is one small mechanism that would basically solve, I don't know, 99% of the problem or 90% of the problem, but it's one small change that would only affect income over $400,000, and it would secure Social Security for everybody for decades. Right. And 
it's very frustrating because here's uh, Max Richmond, uh, Committee for uh, Defense, Social Security, and Medicare, talking on a 45-minute radio show. And meantime, the drug industry is spending millions and millions of dollars on high-production ads on TV. So it's kind of hard to compete with that. But I'm I'm glad you're trying. But we keep doing it, and uh, thankfully there are uh, programs like yours that will invite us to talk about these issues and get our side of the story out. But is it hard to compete with uh, tens of millions of dollars of ads uh, nonstop? Yes, but that's not a reason to stop trying to compete. Yeah, we started out uh, talking about Social Security. This was a 15-minute show, not a 45-minute show. And, you know, you can imagine how compressed we had to get to do everything. Um, so I'm going to ask you the tough question, and I, 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 cause, because you have your ear to the ground in Washington. You participate in a lot of stuff. You listen to everything. What's the real chances of this stuff passing? And what can people do to try to help get uh, uh, some some changes to Social Security that's separate from this bill and 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 these improvements to Medicare? Well, as I said, I, you know, I I have uh, uh, done some campaign uh, campaigning for uh, both your senators. Uh, I was out in uh, in Phoenix endorsing. Uh, uh, Senator Sinema, when she ran, I think that would have been 2018, right? Yeah, 2018. And we had an enormous crowd of seniors. I think she does pay attention to seniors in in Arizona. Obviously, she cares about them, but also they vote. They vote in disproportionate numbers. So I think uh, uh, people in Arizona need to contact both uh, both your senators, because this is going to come be a very close vote. These improvements in, in the Medicare benefits will be, if they happen, will be part of uh, a process called reconciliation, where only uh, only 51 votes are required. So all 50 senators have to be on board with that, and and that's probably going to we're probably going to see some final action on that after Labor Day. But uh, all 50 Democratic senators plus the vice president who can break the tie, if there is a tie, have to be on board in the event there are no Republicans that support uh, the reconciliation bill. So it's very important uh, that uh, uh, that the two senators uh, from Arizona, as well as all, all the rest of the uh, senators who uh, caucus with the Democrats, the two independents that include uh, Maine Senator King and Senator Bernie Sanders are are supporting uh, this uh, reconciliation process that will include uh, uh, Medicare improvements. So reconciliation, Max, is the only way to do this, this to get this passed. Require, uh, the same kind of support, uh, hopefully, from. Uh, the Democratic members of the Senate, and, and I'm hoping uh, uh, from uh, Republicans as well. I, 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 I've been to Arizona with Senator McCain in the past, and uh, there are Republicans, I think, out there like that who can be uh, persuaded to support uh, these kinds of pieces of legislation that we've been talking about. But uh, I do know that both of your senators uh, 
do pay attention to their constituents and especially uh, to seniors uh, and what their concerns are and the fact that they do vote uh, in, in very high numbers. The only way um, to do this is through reconciliation. You, you can never get enough Republican votes in the Senate, Max, to uh, to get the bill passed uh, uh, without uh, over a, over a um, filibuster. It's right. just not possible, huh? No, I don't think so. You would need to, you'd need to uh, have ten Republicans uh, come over, and we've seen you know you've seen all of the news reports. It's that, that's virtually impossible. The reconciliation, uh, the budget process we've been talking about, is really the only avenue for. Uh, adding Medicare benefits and so many other uh, important things for for our, this, our society. President Biden is committed to doing this process. I, you know, it seems like at this point he's going to he'll uh, he'll stick with that. I, I don't think he's from everything I hear and read. I don't think he's uh, open to uh, changing uh, the filibuster rule. Uh, I I do think a good argument could be made for some issues uh, where it may be possible to get enough support to carve out some exceptions to the filibuster rule. Uh, you know that's already happened. We, we, that's, that that was done by Republicans when when we came to uh, confirmation of Supreme Court justices. Uh, that that does uh, that does not require uh, sixty votes. So. We've seen there's a there's a history to doing that. So, uh, but unless that uh, changes, I think the, the um, reconciliation is the only re- realistic approach. So Democrats do all the heavy lifting on improving Medicare and Social Security, and at least out here in Arizona, they don't get seem to get any credit for all this work, all this effort, and all this. Stamina and trying to overcome Republican resistance has has the Republican Party always been against this kind of uh, Social Security and Medicare? I mean, the majority of the party. Well, I, 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 from my, what I remember from the history of both programs, Social Security and Medicare, uh, it was it was the Democrats who who created them, who uh, created these programs. Of course, we know uh, Franklin Roosevelt, President Roosevelt uh, was. He created the Social Security program, and uh, there was a lot of opposition uh, from Republicans to that, uh, and and uh, to the Medicare program uh, back in '65. Uh, you, you know, the the uh, lobbying on on behalf of uh, the, the medical industry, not just the pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. but uh, across the board, uh, they did. There was. Strong opposition and Republicans, I think, paid a lot of attention to that. Not all, but I think most. Uh, and the arguments are very familiar: socialized medicine. You know, although at this point, I I, I don't hear many, if any, Republicans saying standing up and saying uh, we ought to get rid of Medicare. They're they're more clever than that. They're, they will look at ways. To fundamentally change the program to privatize it, to privatize Social Security, uh, but they're not going to be out there saying let's get rid of these programs because they're so popular. 
every member of Congress uh, in the House, every senator has large numbers of seniors who count on that, on those uh, programs to survive. So if there if there is uh, opposition, it's it's much more subtle, and uh, but needs to be taken seriously. Yeah, I think that uh, that's the one of the things I see is is just that Democrats do the heavy lifting and and um, Republicans come along the ride and people don't seem to f- understand who's doing what. So well, a good example of what you're talking about we just seen sure. in the last couple of months the the uh, programs that have been passed uh, by the Biden administration. Uh, that were almost universally opposed by Republicans that helped people get through this pandemic. Uh, you're seeing press releases uh, from uh, Republican members who opposed it touting these benefits that have been uh, added uh, to, uh, been provided to the American people. And you're going to see the same thing uh, on infrastructure, on, on the, the hard infrastructure, roads, bridges, uh, broadband. Uh, when that gets through, and I think it will, then that will be that will be bipartisan. I think, but it'll be uh, uh, a lot of Republicans will oppose it. But you, you, you mark my words. You're going to see press releases from members of Congress who have uh, are able to talk about the money that's coming into the district to help uh, repair their roads, to help repair their bridges, despite the fact that they voted against the bill. No. We've only got a couple of minutes left. How would how would you sum up the chances for these things? I just a, one question to go back on. So we don't know what the dental vision and hearing benefits would be. I mean, how much the person would pay, how much the social Medicare would pay. We don't know. It's not finalized. the The details are not in. It's a it's a broader proposal at this point. And that's exactly right, and mm-hmm. we're not sure how that. If, if the uh, law is changed that uh, uh, provides negotiation of drug prices and the, uh, how that revenue is going to be applied to those, those uh, added benefits and how much of it will go to offset other costs in, in uh, uh, the, the plan we've been talking about. But I think the important thing is to get our foot in the door. I mean, we, we haven't been able to even do that all these years. Even though there are there are some very uh, serious, influential members of Congress that have have been pushing for these additional benefits for quite a few years, so to me the important thing is to uh, to get our foot in the door, as I said, and then build uh, on on the program. These are dynamic programs. Medicare and Social Security have changed dramatically over time, adding benefits. Uh, improving the lives of American people, lifting more people out of poverty. The Social Security program has lifted more people out of poverty than all other federal programs combined. So uh, for me, uh, I think it's important to have uh, uh, have an, a, a, some kind of a change in the, in the programs that will improve benefits. Same with Social Security. 
we would we would love to see there be no cap on benefits. Uh, we want to thank uh, Max Richman for being uh, with us. Hate to cut you off, Max. I mean, 45 minutes or 44 minutes of actual dis- uh, interview time goes by I've really enjoyed fast. It very much. We really we really appreciate you being on the show. We you know we really appreciate your expertise about Medicare and Social Security and having someone periodically willing to come on and and talk to our listeners about it and also the folks that that. Uh, Re, uh, listen to our podcast on on the uh, on the internet. I'd like to thank the Democrats of the Red Rocks. I recommend everybody go to the Door website. Uh, contains a lot of information and connection to other programs. Uh, door breakfasts are still Zoom based, and I don't think they have the uh, 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 speakers worked out yet. But I recommend that you check that out. Verde Valley uh, Democratic Party. Thank you very much. Hello. Been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.